From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. As we approach the 20-year mark since September 11th, we're following up with the clients and the attorney of one seminal ACLU lawsuit on the CIA's post-9-11 torture program, a program that ended in 2010, but that continues to haunt its survivors and to stain the U.S.'s international human rights record. The lawsuit, Celine v. Mitchell, was filed in 2015 against James Elmer Mitchell and John Bruce Jessen, two psychologists contracted by the CIA to design, implement, and oversee the agency's post-9-11 torture program. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of three of the program's victims. All three were kidnapped by the CIA and then tortured and experimented on, according to Mitchell and Jessen's protocols. One of the men died as a result of his treatment. The other two men continue to endure the effects of their detention. In 2017, the psychologists agreed to a settlement, a first for a case involving CIA torture. And today, we'll speak with ACLU staff attorney Stephen Watt about what the litigation achieved and what still needs to happen to prevent any future use of torture. We'll also have a chance to listen in on Stephen's own recent conversations with our three clients as they rebuild their lives and navigate the continued effects of the torture program. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Molly. You know, Stephen, you came to me and Kendall, the show's producer, months ago with the idea for this episode in advance of the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Why did you want to return to this case and to follow up with our clients, Suleiman, Mohammed, and the nephew of Gul Rahman? The idea behind this podcast was to tell folks about the success of one piece of litigation to address post-9-11 torture. I've been involved in litigating cases and other advocacy on behalf of many other survivors of US torture since 2004. All of those cases were dismissed by US courts. So these men didn't even have their day in court. The cases were dismissed on the basis of what's called state secrets. The government basically intervened in the litigation because in those cases, we sued the US government and US government contractors. And we sued them for torture, but the government intervened very early on in the litigation, shortly after the legal complaints were filed, to argue that any further litigation of the case would be harmful to U.S. national security interests, and that the case therefore should be dismissed, that judges shouldn't weigh in and decide whether or not these individuals were tortured and whether or not these individuals deserved an apology and other redress for what the government did to them. And Salim is the only case that got past that motion to dismiss stage. And we went into active discovery where the individuals had an opportunity to put questions to their torturers. And I've been in touch with the plaintiffs subsequent to that settlement. And I just, I saw a manifest difference in their lives from when we started that litigation, when I had the first interviews with them in, um, you know, in, in Istanbul and in Kabul and in Zanzibar, they had very different lives from the lives that they lead now. And I wanted just to talk with them and for listeners to hear about that change. Well, let's talk more about the case, but let's first lay some groundwork around it. 
What led to the torture of our clients? Can you connect for us the aftermath of 9-11 and the eventual torture of these three men? So shortly after uh, 9-11, the CIA began to look at ways and means of gathering, and I quote, intelligence um, to prevent future terrorist attacks against the United States. And the CIA was never in the interrogation business, but they decided that they wanted to get into interrogation and that they wanted to get information and intelligence that would prevent future terrorist attacks against the United States. And from those early conversations, the CIA developed its uh, so-called interrogation program, detention and interrogation program, which also included what's called rendition. So that's the transfer of individuals um, from one country to another. And then they would be detained and interrogated. And the CIA started to develop its own set of interrogation methods. And I call them interrogation methods, but they were in effect torture. They were developed by doctors Mitchell and Jessen from techniques that had been used within the US military. It was de developed by the Korean and Soviets torture methods that was to break down individuals' resistance to interrogation and ultimately to get in the information that the CIA wanted. So that was the detention and interrogation program, the torture program that was developed within the CIA. And all this was being done, obviously, in secret. I mean, uh, we knew shortly after the 9-11 that from newspaper articles and media reports that the United States and its um, agents were using torture. In 2014, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released an executive summary of a report on the CIA's rendition, detention and interrogation program. And it basically mapped out the United States and the CIA specifically development of this torture program. And in that report, there was an annex. And in that annex is as a list of men who were in CIA custody and who were tortured by the CIA while in CIA custody. And in that list were the names of Mohammed Ben Soud, Suleiman Abdullah Salim, and Gul Rahman. And through my work over the years, I actually had contacts with those three and actually had contacts with many of the others that were in that list. And we thought that here was the possibility to bring a case for accountability on behalf of some of those men who had been tortured by the CIA pursuant to its program. And I want to talk a lot more about our clients, but I first want to give Listeners, just a little more background on Mitchell and Jessen. You know, how do two psychologists become involved in the architecture, the implementation, and also the evaluation of a torture program? How did that happen? I think it was incompetence within the CIA. As I mentioned, the CIA didn't, they, they didn't know anything about interrogation. They didn't know about the means of gathering intelligence through interrogation. They'd never been in the interrogation business until September the 11th. And Mitchell was a consultant to the CIA, so he's a CIA contractor. And Jessen, he was in the U.S. military and then transferred across to the CIA after 9-11 to actually assist 
Mitchell in the CIA's interrogation program, its design and its development. The whole theory of interrogation was that you break down the resistance of the persons you're interrogating by applying these you know, cumulatively inhumane tactics to, to like completely break down their resistance and you did that by torturing them or by inducing in them a state of learned helplessness where all you could do is comply with the interrogator's demands for information. That, that was their junk science theory. Stephen, how in the world did the Bush administration justify a program that violated not only international and U.S. prohibitions on torture, but also the Nuremberg Code, which was in place since 1947 in the wake of World War II and bans, you know, non-consensual human experimentation, which this seems like was 100% non-consensual human experimentation. In short, Molly, they had government lawyers redefine torture and what it, what it means to torture. And there's a famous legal memo authored by John Yu, who was then at the Office of Legal Counsel, which defined torture out of existence. It had to be the type of conduct that would cause, and and I'll quote here, organ failure or near death. And if it didn't rise to that level, then it wasn't torture. There's a whole series of, we now call them the torture memos, that doing just that, basically authorizing these techniques. And then they were signed off at the highest levels of government including the methodology and the way that they they applied them. That was all considered um, above board, and it was within the law. And so as we turn to our clients, this is the groundwork, just to review. Torture has been basically renamed into something that is not torture, does not sound like torture, and that has been signed off on at the highest possible levels. And that is the ground that is laid as we turn to Suleiman Muhammad and Gulrahman, we obviously couldn't talk to Gulrahman because he's dead, his nephew. Um, so can you tell us about our clients? What reason did the CIA give for their detention? And what is their story up until the point that you met them? Let's start with Suleiman. How did the U.S. come to detain Suleiman? So Suleiman was detained in March of 2003, and he was detained by a warlord in Somalia. Suleiman was a businessman and he worked on the Swahili coast going from his home in Zanzibar up to Somalia. And at the time of his capture by this warlord, apparently the CIA was looking for Al-Qaeda operatives in the Horn of Africa. So they had the word out to their in various cooperating partners, their other government intelligence agencies, And Suleiman apparently met the criteria and the warlord uh, sold Suleiman to the Kenyan intelligence authorities, who then transferred him to the custody, the sole custody of the CIA. And the CIA then flew him or rendered him from Djibouti to the dark prison known in the Senate report, torture report as Cobalt, where he was interrogated or tortured for information that he didn't have about his associations with the Al-Qaeda terrorist network in Africa. And so Suleiman was held for close to two months in the dark prison and horribly tortured. He was then held for a further month in another CIA prison, also in Afghanistan, before he was transferred to the custody of the US military 
and he was held by the US military in Afghanistan from 2003 through until his release back to his home in Zanzibar through the intervention of the Red Cross in 2008. And he was returned to his home in Zanzibar with a certificate by the US military, which basically said he is of no threat to the United States. So we're releasing him. He was just dumped unceremoniously back to his home in Zanzibar. And that's where he was when we first met him. And Stephen, I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's important for people to understand just how bad it was. Can you just give us an overview of some of the things that Suleiman faced while he was in custody? In the CIA torture site, where his, t- his torture was the worst, because it was a series of severities of torture, he was stuffed inside a small box, three by three foot. He was hung by the arms for hours in a, like a dark room. Um, he was beaten routinely. Uh, he was doused in water. He was rolled up in plastic sheeting. He was strapped to a, a waterboard and threatened with waterboarding. You know, in between all this, he was repeatedly interrogated about people and places that, you know, he did not know or had not been. You know, speaking to Solomon, he was so, when I first met him. And you met him in 2010, right? I'd actually met him over the phone in 2010. But the first time in person was when you and, and I met him. And at that point... An investigator we had on the case, Clara Usiskin, she, you know, she met Suleiman when in Zanzibar when he first came out. So she had a very good sense of what he was like then. And he was he was completely destroyed. He had horrible flashbacks, uh, you know, on an almost daily basis. All these PTSD symptoms that he knew nothing about. He didn't even know that he had PTSD and like severe PTSD. What is your sense from all that you know about Suleiman, about the person he was before all of this happened versus the person he became coming out of it? And, and you know, too, Molly, he is the most lovable individual. He's funny. He's smart. He's very engaging. Everyone without question that has met him, you know, falls a little bit in love with him. And that Suleiman, you know, he's fun loving. He's uh fisherman, he loves his pigeons. And as the litigation progressed, and I got to know him better, and as the years progressed, he changed too. And he's, I would say he's a he's he's a very different person now. When I spoke with him recently, it was clear the same warmth and spirit that was in him when I first met him uh, many years ago was still there. So, Suleiman, I'd like to take you back a a long way, many years, before we first met. How was your life in Zanzibar then? Yeah, before and now, different. Before, he was very tough. And what about the pigeons? What did the pigeons do for you, Suleiman? Yo, the pigeons, they give relax, you know. So, they give me relax to forget the flashback. Has the settlement, has it helped you to recover from... The darkness, you know, your torture. Do you think it's helped your case with flashbacks? Yeah, you give me, you give me more, more hope. And Stephen, I also want to give some attention to Mohammed and Obadullah, who's the nephew of Gul Rahman, who died. Can you tell us about both of them and some of their story? 
Muhammad is another wonderful human being. You know, I met Muhammad and his good friend Khaled al-Sharif in Istanbul before we filed the litigation. And Suleiman and Muhammad were in the same prison at one point. They were in the same prison, yeah. So just to go a bit back, so I met Muhammad in Istanbul and he had a very detailed recollection of what had happened to him. So he was he was brought in there because the CIA suspected that the Freedom Fighter Group, and that's what the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group is, that they were in opposition to the Gaddafi regime in Libya. He's a Libyan citizen, but he's lived in exile from Libya, fleeing Gaddafi's regime since he was 17 years of age. You know, he lived in Pakistan um, and lived in Turkey for some time, and he lived in North Africa for some time. And when he was picked up by Pakistani intelligence in Pakistan, it was in 2003, and it was because the CIA believed that the group that he was a part of were associated with al-Qaeda. The group against the Qaddafi regime? Yes, that the the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group are a group that are associated with al-Qaeda. And that's just not true, as as Muhammad or any other uh, Middle East expert will tell you, that's just not factually true. So again, Muhammad was somebody who the CIA suspected of having information on al-Qaeda, but had none. And yet he was detained, interrogated and tortured for almost a year in the dark prison before he's transferred to this new purpose-built facility, also in Afghanistan, where he was held for, I think it was a further eight months or so. And before he was flown back to Libya, where Gaddafi was still in power. Where he hadn't been since he was 17. Since 17. And Mohammed felt that, you know, he was going to be rendered by, he told his captors, he told the Americans that if you send me back there, Gaddafi is going to kill me. He was actually sentenced to death. There was a kangaroo court and there was a show trial and he was sentenced to death. But then there was the Libyan revolution. Gaddafi was overthrown and Mohammed was released from prison. And he immediately upon getting home, he started to collate his thoughts on his time in U.S. custody. And he actually, he's got a memo that he was able to share with me. And that when I met him in Istanbul, I asked him, I said, your recollection of events is just so detailed. And he said, I ha- you know, I have this mem- memorandum. And he told me that he put that together because he really wanted justice. When I explained to you, Mohammed, that we could bring a case against these two doctors that helped the CIA to design and implement the CIA's torture program, why did you want to bring a case against these two doctors, Mitchell and Jessen? I directed the lawsuit against these individuals because of my ordeal. Having been forced through brutal torture for the more than 500 days that I was in prison. And as I was sensing, witnessing with my own eyes, I was thinking about how these doctors that dedicated their work not to serve prisoners or to alleviate their ordeal, but instead dedicated their knowledge to increasing the pain of the sick and to increasing the mental distress of the sick, and doing so knowing the specific points of weakness of the prisoner so as to intensify their pain and to intensify their torture. This was an agonizing tribulation, one that I can never forget. 
I will never forget how the doctor became the executioner and betrayed his oath. The doctors would inflict pain with extreme precision and care. Their infliction of pain was rehearsed and carefully studied. I mean, what has significantly affected me mentally is the physical torture, because they know the details of torture. And Mohamed, when, when again, when we first met Istanbul and I explained the case against Mitchell and Jessen, did you realize then how difficult that case would be to, to litigate in U.S. courts? For example, did you know that I would be asking you many questions over many months and uh, you would have a, a deposition when the other side questioned you and then you were examined by the other side's doctors? So did you, did you understand all that going into the litigation? Yes, there was no doubt in my mind that this was going to be a difficult pursuit and one that required bravery to overcome it. It was not an easy matter because unfortunately, the United States practiced torture and refused to admit to it and did not allow their documents that expose this truth to come out. So I knew there was going to be obstacles and complications. And Stephen, let's talk a little bit about Gurrahman, and, and you spoke most recently to his nephew. Can you give a little background on his case? Yeah, so Gurrahman, he was one of the early prisoners in the CIA program. He was rendered into CIA custody at the end of 2002. He was held for a month. And while he was in that prison, the same one that Suleiman was in and Muhammad was in, he was subjected to many of the Mitchell and Jessen techniques. And also, Jessen himself was involved in his torture. He was actually in the Cobalt facility. Jessen was in the Cobalt facility, and he was supervising Rahman's torture. And Rahman was eventually tortured to death. He died of hypothermia in that prison. And there was an investigation done by the Office of the Inspector General, which confirmed that Rahman died in that facility in November of 2002. And after his death, uh, we know from newspaper reports that his body was buried in an unmarked grave in the Bagram airfield. And despite the CIA killing him, there was no notification to his family ever. There never has been. Obaidullah, with who we spoke with, his nephew, um, the first they heard, or first confirmation, official confirmation, was when I sent Obaidullah a copy of the Senate torture report with the entries on Gul Rahman, and then the documents that we obtained in the course of the litigation, which described in horrifying detail Gul Rahman's last days and how he died of hypothermia. And there's, an, there's even an autopsy report. So we have that with that and that. It was, took me sending that official note to Obaidullah that he could then share with the rest of the family and the community that Gul Rahman, their father, He's the father of three young children, now all grown, 
a wife, a grandmother. That was the first they'd heard. But still, the family have not received that notification from the US. They haven't received an apology. And the US hasn't even told them where the remains are. They haven't been able to bury Gul Rahman because they don't have the body. And, you know, we tried to get those answers through the litigation, but, you know, the litigation was against Mitchell and Jessen, not against the United States. But then we filed Freedom of Information Act requests to try and get documents to substantiate what they'd done with Gul Rahman's body. And the government just turned around and said, that's national security privilege, and then we're not handing that over. And now, you know, and we've, we've not given up and, you know, Abidullah hasn't given up either. We're, we're trying to use the Afghanistan war crimes trial before the International Criminal Court to elevate that issue too, to just get the family some final closure and to identify where the body is. So, you know, Abidullah and the family, I don't think the litigation gave them as much justice as Suleiman and Muhammad because you know, the family still do not have the body and they're not able to properly mourn Gul Rahman's loss as a consequence. When you and I first spoke about a case in the United States against Mitchell and Jessen on behalf of Gul Rahman and the family, why did you decide to bring that case? Our family was in much uncertainty. Nothing was clear. And finally, we decided to connect with different justice departments, nonprofit organizations, and to seek their support and help regarding the finding of the body, regarding the, to understood at least any information that can help and finish this uh, uncertainty to us. So these were like all the things, all the points that we were finally in contact with ACU and seeking their support and their help regarding the case. And did you think, Obaidala, when, when we spoke about the case, that it would get you the answers that you were seeking? At that time, it was like unbelievable. And uh, we were not thinking of any support from any side because it was happened in 2002. It was disappeared in 2002. When we had contract with the ACLU, we had a hope that uh, maybe ACLU will support us. And... I remember it was, it's very vivid for me now, and I'm sure it is for you, Abaidullah. At, at one point when we were litigating the case, um, we got a number of documents from the US government. They described your uncle's disappearance by the CIA. They described his detention, and they described his torture. And they also described the last days of his life. Um, when you got those documents, how did you and your family feel about that? Uh, the documents was one of the success points that we had received because at least we understood that the world understood that what had happened to a captive, a prisoner, but the documents revealed that there is all injustice, this all torture, extremely torture what had happened to him. I remember again and again the published article written on my late uncle Gul Rahman that uh, the last hours in this world that his wide eyes were open and frozen. The article was saying that his eyes were open and it was like blinking. 
uh, and he was frozen to death. It showed the real picture of the cruelty, the real picture of violence of those who have led, who have monitored, who have been involved and who was doing the torturing with the Afghan prisoners. You see, we haven't mentioned that our three clients were three of, I think last I heard, 119 people, right, subjected to torture. Yes, 119. That's but that number comes from the list in the back of the Senate torture report. There's a list of 119 names. And in, the, in them is Gul Rahman, uh, Suleiman, and Mohammed. I'm curious, you know, the torture program was ended by Obama in 2010. And what has the government done since then to account for its actions or make amends? I mean, you've noted that we still don't have full knowledge of what happened to Gul Rahman. The torture report that you mentioned Only the executive summary was released. There are still 6,000 pages of the actual report that we're still missing. So what still needs to happen? And, and, you know, you spoke to Abaidullah and Mohammed and Suleiman recently. What do you think still needs to happen for them? I mean, they have the settlement, but what what more can be done? From the settlement, they, they got an apology from Mitchell and Jessen. And this was really important for them. That was a really important part. Before we settled the litigation on the eve of trial, Suleiman, Obaidullah, and Muhammad all explicitly asked for an apology. And, you know, that was a truncated apology because it's for what Mitchell and Jessen's actions. They can't apologize for what they did on behalf of the United States. But, you know, we've not been here before in terms of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but we have been here before in terms of putting in protections, reflecting in the wake of violations of human rights and civil rights. I'm thinking the wake of World War II, the wake of the civil rights era, the wake of Vietnam War. And many, you know, including President Obama, have recognized or said that the U.S. felt this imminent threat and have suggested, you know, we shouldn't second guess government officials who thought they were protecting their own country. And Mitchell himself in this very memorable 2016 vice interview you know, choked up when recounting the fear um, and the the feeling of of a call to duty he felt. So I'm curious, knowing that there were protections already in place when 9-11 happened and knowing this feeling that, you know, there was an imminent threat and we had to do what we had to do and all else went out the window, how do we never go back there? I think there has to be full transparency. Which there isn't yet. There isn't yet. All we have, as you mentioned, is we have the executive summary of the CIA's torture program. We have, you know, as you say, at, at 6,000 pages that we, we don't know. They should come clean about that. You need full transparency before you can actually make full amends. And then the U.S. military had its own, you know, it developed, they had common roots, but they, they, they had their own torture program. There was hundreds of men, women, and children subjected to torture in Iraq and Afghanistan at the hands of the U.S. military. And Guantanamo Bay, they're still being tortured there. So we need, we need full transparency as a start point. And then we have to apologize for wrongdoing to the thousands of victims of the CIA's and U.S. military's torture programs. And then there has to be other forms of redress as opposed to just apology. There has to be compensation paid for rehabilitation services. I mean, it really haunts me. We were able to get a modicum of justice for three individuals out of that 119. Well, two individuals and one family who has lost their... Even they haven't got full redress because Go Rachman's body has still disappeared. 
The United States knows where it is, and yet they, they won't come clean about that. They just won't, and, they, and then they won't apologize. So transparency is huge, and it's just lacking. Uh, you know, and, and we even have President Obama. He said, you know, we tortured some folks. If you acknowledge that, then there has to be something more than just acknowledgement and transparency. There has to be full accounting. There has to be apologies, and then there has to be redress. And there has to be, you know, rehabilitation services for all these. I mean, I, you know, I I know what damage the torture program did to three people. They're horribly psychologically scarred, and probably will be for the rest of their lives. And they have no access. They have no real effective access to rehabilitation services to treatment for their psychological injuries. There's hundreds, perhaps thousands of others in a similar place to them, probably in worse place than them, because they haven't had, you know, some modicum of justice that we had through the litigation. And even though Mitchell and Jessen had to apologize as part of the settlement, it's worth knowing that they profited hugely from their CIA contract. How much did they make? $81 million, Molly, that we know about, that they got paid. They had very lucrative consultancy agreement. And then they, they, you know, they even formed a company later on in the development of the program that provided these services and benefited from the government and taxpayers' money uh, to the tune of $81 million. Stephen, I'm wondering, you know, to end, when you most recently spoke to our three clients, what did it feel like for you to come back now after the settlement, you know, four years, almost to the day, because it was August 2017 that the case was settled. What, what was it like for you to talk to them in this more reflective space? And what do you think it was like for them? You know, it's funny, I've been I've been in their lives since I first met them all in person since before the litigation was filed. And I don't think even with the settlement that I ever removed myself from their lives. I think I'll always be a part of their lives. I mean, they always said that myself and the ACLU did so much for them. But I think, speaking personally, they did so much for me. You know, their courage in going forward and their tenacity and just their warmth and their willingness to trust me and the ACLU with their stories. You know, that that that's... They'll always be a part of my life. They might, there might be an attorney-client relationship, but it's something much bigger than attorney-client relationship when you, when you work with people such as Suleiman and Muhammad and Obaidullah. Uh, they, they really are a part of my life. So I wasn't surprised by what they said, but I was heartened by what they said because that's what I felt, you know, that their lives had changed and the litigation had made a difference. And it was just a privilege to be both and to still be a part of their lives and their changing lives, I think. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. And thank you so much for this idea. It was actually, I feel sort of like choked up just thinking about it, but it was so nice to return to all of this now. And this is a really important thing. And again, this was something I learned from Muhammad too. He said to me, when we were signing the settlement agreement, we had the two signatures of Mitchell and Jessen on the settlement agreement. And we had Suleiman's and we had Abidalaz and Muhammad was just to add his and he took a step back before he signed it and he said, I never thought this was through our great interpreter, he said, I never thought that this day would come. And he says, what this has done for me, it has really built up my trust in people again, and not just people in you and the other lawyers from the ACLU, 
and in the institutions, and meaning the institutions, the court, that there can be justice through, even for these horrific events, that there can be some modicum of justice. And it's really important because the torturer is all about breaking trust, or in Mitchell and Jessen's case, about making persons compliant. And that's what Mitchell and Jessen's program had done to Muhammad and the many others that were subjected to it. But yet here was somebody, Muhammad, saying that that trust had slowly begun to come back because of his involvement in the litigation and seeing how the wheels of justice can work. It was really powerful. That is really powerful. Thank you so much, Stephen. No, thanks, Molly. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this case, my former colleague, Noah Yehot, wrote an incredible article about the case on ACLU.org, and it's called Out of the Darkness. It details the case and includes video of Suleiman that Noah and I made, as well as illustrations uh, Mohammed drew depicting what he faced at the hands of the CIA. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.